Hey, let's take our Bibles this morning. <clears throat> Turn to Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> Matthew 24, and we're going to read from verse <clears throat> 32. Matthew 24, verse 32, it says, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Let's commit our time this morning to the Lord in prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning uh, to come together around your word. Lord, I pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts now to receive from you. I pray that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, uh, refresh us and bless us through your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would Empower me through the Spirit, that you give me wisdom and guidance as I speak. That, Lord, it would be your words, it would be your thoughts this morning, and that, Lord, you receive all the glory, the honor, and the praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, <clears throat> on Sunday mornings, we've been considering uh, the parables of our Lord, and most recently, we've been looking at the parable similitudes. And this morning we come now to this illustration here of the fig tree given to us here in verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. These words from our Lord where he speaks about the, the parable of the fig tree, these words are recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. You find it here in Matthew 24. Uh, also over in Mark chapter 13 and then in Luke 21. Uh, we won't bother going to read them, but basically the exact same words are found in both of those passages as well. And so all three of these gospel writers, Matthew, Mark and Luke, all three record these words, this parable from our Lord. And these words come towards the end of a larger discourse where Christ outlines uh, future events for his disciples. In verse 3 of Matthew 24, we see that these words were spoken privately to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Verse 3, it says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So here we see clearly that this is a private conversation between Christ and his disciples, the the crowds are no longer there. It's just the disciples. And Mark actually limits it even further. Mark tells us that only four of the disciples were there. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Just turn over there. Mark 13 quickly. <clears throat> In Mark chapter 13 and verse 3. <clears throat> it says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, 
When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? So Mark limits it down even further. That's just these four, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. These four who come and have this private conversation with the Lord. And so it becomes clear this is a private conversation between Christ and his disciples. And we're told that this discourse begins when they come asking the Lord a series of questions. We read them there before in verse 3. They come and ask, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And so essentially they come and they ask him three questions in quick succession. What prompted them to ask these questions? Well, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Matthew 23. Now, at the end of chapter 23, Christ there lamented over the judgment that was coming upon uh, Jerusalem, upon the nation of Israel, and upon uh, the temple, how they would be destroyed because of the rejection of him. Just go back to Matthew 23 and verse 37. <clears throat> Christ says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her, under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, so you should say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And so Christ had prophesied of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and indeed of the temple. And he prophesied that he was going to leave. Okay, that the nation would be separated from their Messiah until he came again and they received him. Okay, as he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And then at the start of chapter 24... Christ then reiterates this. He goes out of the temple and again he speaks to his disciples and declares the temple is going to soon be destroyed. Verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 24. It says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So again, Christ reiterates this point, the coming destruction upon Jerusalem and indeed upon the temple. So it's after hearing all these words from the Lord concerning coming judgment and indeed concerning his departure from them, that these four disciples come and they ask the Lord this series of questions. When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And so they ask these three questions of him. Now, the answer to the first question, when shall these things be? That question is in regards to the temple. You know, he said the temple was going to be destroyed and Jerusalem. And they said, when shall these things be? The answer to that question isn't recorded for us here in Matthew 24. But it is recorded over in Luke 21. We're not going to turn there. But in Luke 21, verse 20 to 24, Christ answers that question. And basically, he outlines the destruction of Jerusalem under Titus in A.D. 70. But here in Matthew 24, the answer recorded is concerning the second and third question. What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? That is the answer here that Christ gives. That's recorded for us in Matthew 24. And so in verse 4 and following, the Lord now gives a very lengthy answer to these questions. And it's important that as we consider 
Matthew 24 this morning, that we remember that Christ is speaking to Jews. And he is speaking to them about God's program for Israel. This passage, these prophetic truths revealed here are concerning Israel's future. And they're concerning the Lord's return to rule as their Messiah. Dwight Pentecost, he writes this, The entire passage in Matthew 24 and 25 was written to answer this question concerning the signs of Messiah's coming, which would terminate the age. The Lord is giving the course of the end of the age prior to the establishment of the kingdom as it relates to Israel and Israel's program. And this program is developed in strict chronological order. And so Christ here gives a a wonderful insight into future events for Israel and he outlines them in a chronological order, one after another. And then he gives the parable of the fig tree towards the end of that to drive home his point that when these events begin to happen, his return and the end of the world is nigh. And so with all that in mind this morning, let's begin by considering the prophetic revelation that Christ gives here, the prophetic revelation. And this is found in verse 4 right down to verse 31. We're not going to read all of it right now, but let's just read from verse 4. It says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and, shall, and you shall be hated of all, the na- all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. And so Christ here in these verses, he outlines uh, for Israel the future events. Now, as we said, this prophetic re- revelation here is concerning the nation of Israel. And you've got to keep that in mind when you read Matthew 24. Because if you start thinking it's about the church, you will misinterpret it. Okay? The church here is not in view. In fact, chronologically, the church is already in glory. The rapture has already taken place. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We know this passage well, I'm so- sure, but it's a glorious passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. <clears throat> it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these Words. You know, here we see the wonderful future for the church, for those who are in 
Christ for those who have accepted Him as their own personal Savior. You see, as believers, we know the Lord Jesus Christ today. As believers, we look forward with great expectation to the day when He will return to the clouds. That's, that's the, the coming we look for, for His return to the clouds to take us home to be with Him. As we read there in verse 17, it says, We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so Christ will return to the clouds and we will be caught up, we will be raptured to meet Him and indeed our loved ones who have died, who are saved, we will meet them and the Lord in the air. This is the rapture of the church and this will take place first before these events here in Matthew 24. And so the rapture of the church is not in view in Matthew 24. It's not in view anywhere in this chapter. Okay, You've got to keep that in mind as you read it. So the church is not in view. The rapture of the church is not in view. Rather, what Christ is speaking about here will happen once the church has been taken out of the world. Christ is speaking in Matthew 24. Christ is speaking about what's known as Daniel's 70th week. Let's turn quickly to Daniel chapter 9 this morning. <clears throat> I'm going to do my best to keep things simple this morning, but it's not an easy passage. Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> In Daniel chapter 9, and let's read from verse 24. In Daniel 9 verse 24, it says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times." And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the, war, sorry, unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto, until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. In Daniel chapter 9, the Lord reveals unto Daniel his prophetic plan for the nation of Israel. And it involves here 70 weeks. And each of those weeks is seven years. So 70 times seven years, 490 years. God gives this wonderful prophetic declaration, a wonderful outline of his plan for Israel. And the first 69 weeks of that prophetic plan have been fulfilled. They've come to pass. They've been perfectly fulfilled when Christ entered into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry. It's been perfectly fulfilled. And so that leaves just one week of this prophetic plan yet to be fulfilled. It leaves the final week that final seven years of God's plan for Israel to be fulfilled. And it's mentioned there in verse 27, which we just read in Daniel chapter 9. That's that final week. 
And so it's the events of that final week, that final seven-year period, known as Jacob's trouble, known as the tribulation. That's the period that Christ is focusing on here this morning in verse 4 and following. He's talking about that final seven years. And Christ's words here this morning can be divided into three sections. The first section, verses 4 through to 8, describes for us the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years. Let's just read from verse 4 again. Verse 4, it says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Christ here describes the first half of the tribulation. Now the events listed here in these verses, Christ says in verse 8, he says, all these things, sorry, all these are the beginning of sorrows. So Christ describes those events in verses 4 through to 7 as the beginning of sorrows. Now the word sorrows there means pain of childbirth or labor pains. And so Christ declares that these events are the beginning of labor pains for the nation of Israel. Now labor pains were used in the Old Testament as a description of this period known as Jacob's trouble, the tribulation. Just go quickly to Jeremiah 30. We could go to other passages, but just turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 6. Jeremiah 30, verse 6, it says, Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail? And all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. We see this idea of labor pains, and it's connected with this idea of Jacob's trouble. This period is a a time of trouble for God's people, a time of affliction. And it's designed to bring them to repentance. That's the whole point of the tribulation of Jacob's trouble, is to bring them to repentance. It's designed to prepare them for his return. And so they will go through labor pains before they see the salvation of the Lord as he comes again. And so the events listed here in verse 4 through to 8 are the beginning of this period of time, the beginning of these labor pains. And so it's no surprise then to see that these events in verse 4 through to 7, these events line up with the events listed in Revelation chapter 6, which is the beginning of the tribulation with the seal judgments. Now for time's sake, we're going to briefly discuss these this morning. And so turn to Revelation 6 and keep your finger in Matthew 24 because we're going to sort of turn back and forth between both passages. <clears throat> in Matthew 24, first of all, keep your finger in Revelation 6. Matthew 24, verse 4. It says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, 
and shall deceive many. So Christ starts out by talking about false prophets and false Christs, or a false Christ in particular, coming to deceive the people, coming to deceive the nation. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. It says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Revelation 6 begins with the first seal being opened, and you have the Antichrist appearing. Okay, the rider on the white horse here is the Antichrist. And he will appear soon after the rapture of the church, and he will come to deceive the nations. And in particular, he will come as a peacemaker and sign an agreement with the nation of Israel to be their protector. And then in Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, it goes on, Christ says, And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that, see that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And so Christ goes on and says that there will be wars. Nation will rise against nation. In Revelation 6, verse 3, it says, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the sec second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And so Revelation 6, we see the second seal open. We see a rider now on a red horse. And this rider goes forth to take peace from the earth, bringing war between the nations. In verse 7 of Matthew, Christ goes on and says, For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence, uh, pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. Christ goes on now and says that this war will be followed by famine. Revelation 6 verse 5, it says, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Revelation 6, with the third seal, the black horse. And we see this time the incredibly high price that food will cost in the tribulation. A penny speaks of a day's wages. And so this points to famine. It points to a shortage of food, exactly as Christ said in Matthew 24. And then finally in Matthew 24, verse 7, Christ says at the end of the verse, He says, And pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. Christ says there will be pestilences, earthquakes, which of course are going to lead to the death of many people. In Revelation 6, verse 7, it says, And when He had opened the fourth seal... I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked and beheld a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Here we see that the fourth seal is opened and it brings death. We see the fourth part, a quarter of the earth's population will die. Again, the events follow Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. They follow the same outline. It's talking about the same period of time. 
So we can see how these events line up. So these judgments here in verse 4 through 7 are the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of the tribulation. And then in verses 9 through to 26, Christ describes for us the second half of the tribulation. In verse 9 we read, Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. In verse 9, it begins with the word then. It indicates for us a shift or a change that now takes place. After the beginning of sorrows, then something takes place. After the beginning of sorrows, there is a, a change. There is a period now of great persecution, verse 9 says. Okay, then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. So there's now going to be a time, a period of great persecution against God's people, against the nation of Israel. And the turning point, the beginning of this great persecution is described for us in verse 15. And so if you like, verse 9 and verse 15 are connected. Verse 15, it says, When ye therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, Let him understand. Here in verse 15, Christ speaks of the abomination of desolation, which was what Daniel prophesied would occur in the middle of the tribulation, in the middle of that week, in the middle of those seven years. Just turn back quickly, Daniel chapter 9. Just read that verse again. Daniel 9, verse 27. This is what Christ is speaking about here in verse 15. Daniel 9 verse 27, it says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of oblations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So Christ is speaking about exactly that. Verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9, the abomination of desolation when the the Antichrist will break his covenant with Israel. In the midst of the week, in the midst of that seven years, after three and a half years, he'll break his covenant with Israel. He'll enter into the temple. He would desecrate the temple of God and he'll proclaim himself to be God in the place of the Lord. And here in Matthew 24, Christ declares that when they see this happening, when Israel sees this happening, he says you need to flee to the mountains and await for his coming look in verse 16 of Matthew 24 it says then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house neither let him which is in the field return to take his clothes and woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days but pray ye that your flight be not in the winter neither on the sabbath day for then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe 
it not. Christ here declares that when they see the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist break his covenant, the Antichrist desecrate the temple, they had to flee to the mountains and await for his coming. And again, this fits with Revelation. This time with chapter 12. Just quickly turn there, Revelation 12. <clears throat> I know we're turning to a lot of passages this morning. I hope you're following and keeping up. Revelation 12 and verse 12. It says, Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she, she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The woman here is, of course, the nation of Israel. and talks about them taking the wings of the great eagle and flying to their place in the wilderness. It's exactly what Christ is speaking about here in Matthew chapter 24. And so we see this idea that in the, in the middle of the tribulation, there's a turning point. There's a turning point. Great persecution comes against Israel and they're forced to flee from their land. And then verses 10 through to 14, which we haven't touched on yet, verses 10 to 14 give us, if you like, a general description of the times. Let's just read those verses. Verse 10, it says, And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And so verses 10 to 14 seem to give us a, a general description of this period of time. We see that there will be false prophets who will deceive many, verse 10 to 12, as we just read. And then there will also be those who are faithful unto his coming, verse 13. But he, sh he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. And so there's going to be those who are deceived, but there's going to be those who remain faithful okay, and await for the coming of the Messiah. Revelation 14, don't turn there. Revelation 14 verse 1 speaks of the 144,000 Jews who will be sealed and stand firm as his faithful witness through these times until Christ comes. And so we can see how verse 9 through to 26 describes for us the second half of the tribulation. And Israel now awaiting the return of their Messiah. And then verse 27 to 31, Christ describes his triumphant return. Verse 27 says, For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, 
and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of, trump, of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven uh, to the other. In these verses, Christ now describes his triumphant return at the end of the tribulation. And a number of things are made clear here. The first is that his return will uh, come immediately after the tribulation. Verse 29, it says immediately after the tribulation of those days. And so it's immediately. Christ's return concludes the tribulation. It brings it to an end when he returns. And we see secondly that he will return after announcement of a sign in the heaven. Verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. We're not told what this sign will be, but it will be a sign declaring that Christ is coming. Now we've seen a number of signs already, haven't we? In verse 4 through to 26, we've seen a number of signs, a number of events that will happen. But this sign is something unique. This is something different that will be visible unto all. And so Christ's sign will be there in the heavens and then he will return with great power and glory. As it says there in verse 30, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so Christ's coming now will be something that is very public. The whole world will see his second coming. They will know that Christ has Come, and he will then gather his people, verse 31, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Christ will gather the elect, and it's talking about Israel. He'll gather Israel, those who have trusted him, and he will rule and reign as their king for a thousand years. He will bring in the millennial kingdom. So Christ here in these verses outlines these wonderful events that will unfold for Israel leading up to his return. We have seven years of tribulation divided into two halves before his triumphant return to rule and reign. And it's after this prophetic revelation that Christ now gives us the parable of the fig tree. And we had to go through that this morning because that's the context, isn't it? That's what this parable is all about. That's the context. And so let's consider now, secondly, this morning, the image of the parable. The image of the parable. Let's just read verse 32. He says, Now, now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye... When you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Christ instructs his disciples, he says, learn a parable of the fig tree. Now the word translated learn here means increase one's knowledge. And in particular, it's used in the word of God to speak of spiritual knowledge, to speak of spiritual learning. And so Christ exhorts them to learn a spiritual truth to gain spiritual understanding by looking at the fig tree. 
And the end of verse 32, it tells us what it is that they are to take notice of. Okay, verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. Christ here speaks about the changes that take place in the fig tree leading up to summer. Now, fig trees were commonplace in Israel. And so Christ is speaking about something that they'd all observed and they all understood. They knew what he was saying. They'd seen it. They knew it well. It's also perhaps significant that at this time, as we saw earlier, they're on the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is known for its olive trees, obviously, but it also is known for its fig trees. And so it's possible as Christ is speaking these words, he points at one of these fig trees, points his disciples' attention towards it. And we read there in verse 32, it says, When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. See, this speaks of the fact that you can tell the seasons by looking at the fig tree or indeed any deciduous tree. You know, after winter, the sap which had been bound up and congealed begins to flow once more. And soon the tender branches begin to put forth leaves, indicating spring. And then as the tree leaves out, it shows that summer is nigh. Summer is approaching. Dwight Pentecost writes this, During the winter months, the trees were bare. People, had, sorry, people who had long endured the cold, damp winter were looking forward to the coming of summer. As they walked along a path, they would see the first tender green shoot on a fig tree or in any tree. This green growth was a sign to them that what they were looking for and what they knew eventually would come was not far off. A process had begun that would eventuate in summer. You see, the parable here speaks of signs that indicate the arrival of a certain event. That's the whole image here. Christ says, look at the fig tree. When you see those new shoots, you know summer is coming. Nothing's going to prevent it. It is coming. And that's the whole point here. Christ says, when you see these things, you know I am coming. Verse 33, he says, so likewise, ye, talking to Israel, when ye see, shall see that all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Christ declares for us the spiritual lesson here. He says, just like the fig tree, when it buds, he says, when you see that, you know summer is coming. He says, when you, as, as the people of Israel, when you see these events that are prophesied here in verse 4 to 26, when you see these things begin to unfold, Israel can know for a certainty that their Messiah is coming. Dwight Pentecost again, he writes this, By these things, Christ was referring to all the signs given in verse 4 to 26. Christ was saying that the appearance of the first of these signs would serve notice to Israel the Messiah was coming. The sign would serve notice of his coming in the way that the first green shoot serves notice to those who have endured the long winter that spring is on the way. Yeah, for Israel, they're in a winter, aren't they? You see, when they see these shoots, when they see these events begin to happen, they know that summer is coming. They know their Messiah is on his way. And Christ then adds to this the words of verse 34. He says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Christ indicates that once these signs begin, his return will soon follow. 
You see, he says, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. The generation that he's referring to here is those who are alive when the tribulation begins. That generation, that generation who are alive and witness the beginning of these things to unfold, they will also witness his return. And so they're not going to have to wait long, are they? They're going to have to wait long. As we said already this morning, the tribulation lasts seven years, no more. And then Christ will come with great power and glory. And so it's clear that this parable this morning, it holds special meaning and encouragement for those who go through the tribulation. I, mean, I don't know about you, but if I was one of those who was unsaved and here during the tribulation, this passage is going to be a place of comfort. This is a passage for those who believe in the tribulation and come to the Lord. This is a passage of comfort. But what about us as the church? As we've already said this morning, we're, we're not going to be here for all this. We're going to be in glory. We actually come back with the Lord at the end of all these events to rule and reign with Him. But there is still a lesson we can learn from this parable this morning. And so let's consider thirdly and just quickly the lesson of the parable. The lesson of the parable. Look in verse 35 because I think this sums it up perfectly. Verse 35 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. I think this sums up perfectly for us the spiritual lesson of the parable for all of us. Christ he declares, he says, heaven and earth shall pass away. That's a statement of certainty. He doesn't say heaven and earth, earth might pass away. No, he says heaven and earth shall, they will pass away. It's a certainty the end will come. Hebert writes this, in spite of all their stability, the heaven and the earth as we know them will pass away come to an end of their present state of existence. You see, it's certain that heaven and earth will pass away. These, these things that seem to be stable, these things that seem to continually endure, they will come to an end. In 2 Peter 3, we see described the judgment that's coming. Just turn there, 2 Peter. <clears throat> In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, <clears throat> it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in, the, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation? And godliness, looking forward and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now here we see described the judgment that's coming and the fact that as believers, we look for the new heaven and the new earth as he has promised. And so heaven and earth will pass away. That's a certainty. But in contrast to this, what does Christ say? He says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. It's a wonderful contrast, isn't it? Even heaven and earth is going to pass away, but his words shall never pass away. Beloved, that's the wonderful lesson of the parable for us this morning. Christ's words are certain. They're as certain as summer is coming. They're certain. 
His words will endure. Heaven and earth will come to an end, but the word of the Lord endures forever. His word must and it will be perfectly fulfilled for Israel, but also for us. Nothing can stop his word from coming to pass. One commentator wrote this. He said, the primary reference here is to the present discourse. But the unqualified expression, my words, indicates that the claim holds for all of his teachings. His words shall never lose their validity. You see, that's the wonderful assurance. You know, just as those going through the tribulation can trust his words, that when they see these events, they know he is coming soon. Just as they can trust his words, beloved, we can trust his words and his promises unto us. You know, many today scoff at the promises of the Lord. Second Peter tells us that. Turn back there, Second Peter 3. And we'll stay here until the end this morning. Second Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> we were here before, but in verse, verse 3, Second Peter 3, verse 3, it says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us would, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Indeed, many scoff today, don't they? Fulfilling these words, many scoff, many doubt the word of the Lord. But beloved, we can be sure that God's word will not fail. It will not fail. Now, as Peter says there. You know, God is not acting according to man's timeline. He's acting according to his eternal divine plan. And everything is going to happen in his perfect timing. His word will not fail. But if Christ has said it, then it is certain. Just as certain as summer is coming. Nothing can stop it. In Second Peter chapter 1, it talks about the fact that we have a more sure word of prophecy. Let's just read these words. This morning, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in dark place, unto the day dawn, and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time with the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But, beloved, we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have the word of God. And God's word is sure and we can rest in the knowledge that he is coming back. He's coming back first of all to the clouds to take us home to be with him. Those of us who are saved, who placed our faith and trust in him. And then he is going to return at the end of the tribulation to rule and reign for a thousand years. And beloved, if we're believers, we're going to return with him. We'll see that triumphant return. You see, his word will not fail. His promises are certain. And therefore, beloved, let us watch and pray, earnestly expecting his return. In Mark 13, verse 33, Christ himself said this, 
Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. Let's close this morning in a word of prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that in your word you reveal these wonderful truths unto us. Lord, your plan of history is already outlined. And Lord, everything will fall into place when you are ready. And Lord, as sure as summer is coming, Lord, we can be sure of your return. Lord, as believers, we look forward to that return to the clouds to gather us home to be with you. Lord, help us to watch and pray. And Lord, every day live expectant of your return. Lord, help us to tell others so they might escape the tribulation that is to come before it is eternally too late. Lord, bless as we close now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.